0: Hat man nicht auch bald ein Leben kann man nicht ganz glücklich sein. Traurig läßt sich fort das Leben, mancher Kummer stellt sich ein, mancher Kummer stellt sich. Ein
1: you're listening to the thoroughly good classical music podcast a conversation between audience member and artist designed to demystify the classical music and opera experience if you enjoy the thoroughly good classical music podcast and really who wouldn't please consider supporting it for as little as two dollars a month visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to pledge your support Thoroughly Good classical music podcast number 93 is published at a point in time during the ongoing global pandemic when in the UK restrictions are being eased. Single parents and people who live alone are now able to form support bubbles with other households. For these people at least social distancing need not apply. Connections can be re-established after an extended period of disconnection and perhaps even loneliness. In nearby Blackheath, southeast London, close to where I live, a mixture of local residents, presumably, and visitors from nearby have interpreted this latest easing of restrictions as permission to overlook the social distancing rule. Blackheath is then full of people. To all intents and purposes, it looks like a normal Saturday afternoon. Only for those of us who adjust to frameworks, criteria, guidelines or rules quite quickly... This makes doing something as simple as cycling around the heath a surprisingly antsy affair. Little wonder then, I've returned home and poured myself a glass of wine to calm down. What little benefit my reasonably sedate exercise had is now thrown away. These experiences, what I observe in Blackheath for example, are like news of the return of horse racing or Premier League football or Formula One behind closed doors. They act as painful reminders of what classical music, theatre, and opera isn't allowed to do right now. In a counterintuitively yet similar way, the live Wigmore Hall recitals streamed on YouTube this month remind us that us audience members are going to have to wait a long time before we're able to experience anything live in person collectively. And the longer we wait for that, personally, I can't see it happening before December this year, those organisations which have helped create the appetite in people like me, well, they face an uncertain future. Actually, I'd go a little further than that if I'm going to talk about my own perspective, just as I'm doubtful there will be a return to concert halls before... December, I really can't see how there won't be orchestras, ensembles or organisations that go to the wall before then. Because how can there not be? Because there's no revenue, there's no financial support, there's no swift return to anything approaching normality right now. And there are precious few advocates in high enough places willing to stick their necks out and do what is necessary to protect this precious resource. Perhaps I shouldn't be surprised But I am hurt. The thing that brought me back from the brink nearly 30 years ago was classical music. It's the thing that facilitated the creation of the most valued of friends and professional associates. It's also the thing that seems to me in danger of being lost. Kind of. Mass gatherings are the last things which will return. And that's right and proper if we are to reduce the rate of transmission of this disease. But when the message is that an adjusted kind of normal life is returning for most, I'm reminded that the wait is long before live performance can return. I can't claim all of this to be all of my own thinking, not a bit of it. Or rather, I sort of had thought it, I just hadn't articulated it because I hadn't had the confidence to do so. Or I didn't think that I'd got my thinking right. I didn't think that... I was justified in saying all of this. I thought that maybe I was being a little histrionic, or maybe I was even catastrophizing. And then earlier this week, I read an article in The Guardian with the headline, Are we going to let classical music die? In the space of a few minutes, I discovered that someone else had joined up the dots I'd formed in my head. Not only had that person brought together the thoughts and feelings of a great many arts leaders, conductors and performers who needed a platform to express their thoughts, But that particular individual had as a result ended up, reluctantly, I now discover, as a bit of a cheerleader, for me at least. Someone who had, just by reporting what others were thinking, stepped up to the plate. And someone who also loves Brahms. Uh, I suppose the thing to to ask you in time-honoured tradition, can you tell me what you had for breakfast this morning, please?
0: Yes, I had some muesli with some strawberries and banana and a frothy coffee.
1: <laughs> what made you laugh about the coffee? I don't understand.
0: Um, I don't know, just the word frothy? <laughs> and also, like, was I really going to call it a cappuccino? um you know... In the old
1: days, we just called it a frothy coffee, didn't we? <laughs> that's, what my, yeah, that's what my dad... Yeah, yeah I, I get you. I understand why that would make you laugh. Yeah, I, I immediately think of my dad going, oh, I'll have a frothy coffee, please. Um, uh, when it is, as you say, a cappuccino. It's the kind of detail that I think is really important for these kind of conversations. Um, can you also tell me, uh, what can you see out of your nearest window?
0: I can see a... Um I can see my sort of basement area, which is uh, which happily has got some plants in it.
1: Are you a gardener? It's
0: got three hostas, <laughs> a rosy geranium, a camelia, and a um, rather struggling um, uh, oh god, what is it called? Yucca.
1: Nice. So that makes you a gardener then. Are you a gardener? I am a gardener, Oh, yeah. how lovely. Uh, so have you been doing a lot of gardening whilst you've been locked down in your working space?
0: Uh, I have been every day giving a prayer of immense thankfulness to all the gods But I have a little patch of garden and I have been doing a lot of gardening and it has kept me sane and I am profoundly grateful for it. And it, it is looking quite good as a result of my... <laughs>
1: effort <laughs> um my assumption is is that as a journalist you probably spend uh you know i don't i don't know you at all i don't know how you work my assumption is that you don't go into king's place at guardian hq that you probably spend most of your time at home anyway so lockdown is just not really that much different from your normal working life
0: well actually it kind of is i mean in the first part of lockdown, until the 27th of April, I was finishing a book, and I was on leave, extended leave from The Guardian, that they very generously gave me unpaid leave so that I could finish this book. So in that sense, that was very, that, was very, um, that didn't mean that any change happened to me personally. You know, I was just in my basement finishing my book and um, felt kind of obscurely guilty that I wasn't putting my shoulders to the wheel journalistically, really. But, no, normally I would go into the office, not every single day, but a couple of times a week, certainly at least once a week. Um, and when I got came back to work, I mean, these verbs of movement don't really make any sense anymore, do they? When I con- <laughs> picked up work again for The Guardian on the 27th of April... Um, by just opening up a different window on my computer, I suppose. Um, It did feel very strange and very different, and I really, really miss, actually, the camaraderie of journalism. You know, like, the buzz of a newsroom. Um, Very clever, interesting colleagues who work in all kinds of different specialisms and know a huge amount about different bits of the world that I don't know about so much. Um, I really miss that. I miss the kind of random silly conversations. Journalists are really good company. You know, they're really curious and well-informed and often, I mean, my kind of journalist. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they're kind of irreverent, you know, have a kind of healthy loathing of, power, or not loathing, but scepticism. No,
1: let's call it loathing. (laughs)
0: um, You know, so I I love journalists, and I miss them. I went into the office once, uh, because I had reason to do so in a complicated way that I won't bore you with, and it was absolutely creepy. It um, It was, there's an episode in season two of The Handmaid's Tale, where Alfred is, uh, hidden in the abandoned offices of the Boston Globe, and it's like this sort of archaeological scene where you know there were kind of bits of old newspaper billowing around from a previous era, and then eventually she makes her way to the basement and finds the bloodstains where they were all lined up. <laughs> wow! <and
1: shots. laughs> wow! I mean, the imagery.
0: The imagery. <laughs> that, very much like that with this sort of archaeological moment of late March when the when the building emptied out fully. Um. Sort of memorialised by you know page proofs from the you know from, from from that time littered around, but nothing any nothing later than the end of March.
1: Did it did it seem like an abandoned building?
0: Yeah, I mean there is a skeleton staff in there. In fact, all the the most all the all the most powerful people of the paper are still seem to be going in. So there are about twenty very important people, and everybody else is dispersed. And so there is this sort of. I think kind of rather extraordinary, and I find it very moving actually, kind of sense that this, this thing that we can't stop producing, that it would be terrible to stop producing. There was, I think there was a moment where it kind of, you know, there was a serious doubt as to whether we could keep on producing particularly the newspaper as opposed to the website. But um, it is somehow being produced by people sitting in their bad bedrooms, if they have a spare bedroom. Of course, it's most likely to be round a kitchen table with a bunch of flatmates who are also trying to do their jobs. Um, potentially, you know, with toddlers underfoot or homeschooling needs for teenagers and stuff and pets and partners and dodgy Wi-Fi signals and somehow this thing is still coming out I I find it remarkable Um, it is quite hard it's quite hard, it's quite hard this sort of dispersed, disembodied colleague thing and of course it's hard for everyone and my god, I'm grateful to have a job Um, uh, the I suppose what makes me and my colleague, you know, it's almost like the opposite of this terrible situation for musicians, who are suffering this kind of existential crisis of not being able to do the thing that they were pushed on to do, as well of course as a sort of financial disaster. So the journalists, although it's it's it it is financially pretty devastating, you know, The Guardian, you know, the, we, we're losing a lot of money in the short term. Um, because of the collapse of advertising and also because of, uh, because The Guardian can't easily be, you know, the newsstand sales have have um, decreased substantially. Nevertheless, there's nothing like disaster to give journalists a collective sense of purpose. So we hmm. do at least have that kind of, it's almost the opposite from that kind of existential crisis of musicians and performers. It's like we really kick into action, <laughs> yes. Yeah. We, you know, we feel incredibly purposeful when when the shit hits the fan. So I, so it, it's a, it's, so it's a very strange combination. Of, it's a very strange
1: way to be operating one's working life. Do um, you do you find then so in in my line of work I find that there are people sort of starting to talk about or starting to question about to what extent people need to be back in the office in order to do the work especially given that they've spent the past 3 months doing their work remotely. Um and, and quite a lot of me feels like I do not want to step back into another office again. And I had already felt that way because of working freelance. Um, <clears throat> but I wonder whether that's actually necessarily very different for a journalist. That
0: well, it's funny. I felt very much like, you you know, my working life today, I mean, I've worked at The Guardian for over 20 years. And granted, over that time... I have worked myself into a blissful position of not really actually needing to be in the office, and that just suits me fine. That suits me fine. Being in the office eight hours a day is not a happy thing for me at all. But but weirdly, now that I can't just amble down the road and step into that, I've always felt like it's like stepping into a kind of Cocktail party—it's—it's it's, it's huge fun as long as you don't have to be there for that long, and you wouldn't want to be in a cocktail party eight hours a day, five days a week. Well,
1: oh, I don't know. I don't know.
0: Well, I don't think my liver could stand it, but you know, for for a you know short short burst is absolutely marvelous. Um. And now that's been taken away from me, I sort of bitterly regret it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Um, but it's
0: there's not- no, certainly, I mean, who knows? I mean, like like a lot of people, like, there's certainly no instant prospect of us going back. And, you know, we've, we've been told yesterday, actually, that, no, certainly not before the autumn, is there any idea of us going back? Um, and and, um, and even then, of course, you know, there, there's going to be a huge sort of examination of what kind of working practices. Yes. Um might look like but it it would be a shame actually because as I said, that, that sort of newsroom buzz and it is you know it is like it is in the movies. you know it is kind of people kind of okay they're not screaming hold the front page I, I just don't think anyone's ever said that but it's um you know a kind of sense of activity working up to a deadline and um you know when when there's a lot of action in the world, it feels really buzzy and that kind of sense of everybody working together, which is just not the same if you're not bodily present with each other. You know, it can't be. So, yeah.
1: Are you a violinist?
0: Yes. I mean, I'm terrible...
1: (laughs) Well, no, you don't. Sorry, I'm not going to ask you to prove it now. No, I just (laughs)
0: want. No, I just wondered.
1: (laughs) No, I just wondered because the music that you set... or one of the one of the works that you sent through, was uh, the Brahms G major Sonata. Yeah. Um, And I had completely forgotten about the Brahms G major. I played the piano accompaniment for for a family member of mine who is uh, who was learning it at the time. It is a joyous thing.
0: It. And it has been a bit of lockdown project. I, I must say, you know, I'm one of those non-practising violinist. Um, I play uh, chamber music with uh, a group of very, very dear friends. It's a real, you know, we we were due to play, we were due to play on, you know, the weekend after lockdown happened. So we haven't played together for some time. There, there, there's been a bit of a gap before that. Even um, I miss it dreadfully. Um, uh, so, yes, I mean, I, luckily for me, my partner plays the piano. And so we've been working on the um, bombs over 78. Uh, I mean, it's really difficult, right? Yes, yes, But, it but There was a nice <laughs> thing at the beginning of lockdown when I suddenly realised that if I searched on BBC Sounds, I could probably find Andrew McGregor or somebody talking about... Um, Brahms over 78 on building a library. It wasn't him but it was someone else and uh, this kind of brilliant Radio 3 examination of all the different recordings which of course is kind of terribly useful if you're studying a work so that sort of got, got, got us going and um, one, of the, one of the weird outcomes the oh, <laughs> weird but nice outcome of the article I wrote about classical music in The Guardian last week was that Tasman Little offered to give me a lesson
1: on it. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, what a mess.
0: <laughs> How lovely. And I'm, I'm far too terrified to take her on the offer.
1: Oh, but that's <laughs> like lovely. Ta- ta- Tasman Little is just adorable. She's just adorable. Um, uh, what? So when did you first play the Brahms. Have you played it before? Are you sort of returning to yeah, it?
0: Yeah, no, I did play it when I was a kid. I mean, I'm, a, I'm sure I'm not alone in being um, someone who didn't play. You know, I played a lot when I was at school and, and university, although to a lesser extent because I just discovered there was like other stuff I could do or wanted to do like produce plays and write for student newspapers and do student politics and things. Um, and then, then followed a lengthy gap um, then I was sort of bullied into taking it up again by a sort of collection of various people. <laughs> that sounds rather <laughs> It
1: does, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it really does. They bullied you, did they, Charlotte? Really? What did they do? Did they call you names?
0: Oh, I could name names. It was people <laughs> like Susanna Eastburn, who runs Sound <laughs> right. and Music, um, and my 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 partner, and, um, and actually even my old boss, Alan rusbridge who's a... Uh, clarinetist, i anyway, I was sort of somehow persuaded that um, playing chamber music would be, you know, it could be fun. So <laughs> I, I took it up again, but, you know, have... <laughs> what, what I'm trying to say did that bronze over 70, I think for grade eight, and of course, you know, at, at age 48, or 47, I, however old I am, 47, I um, am now struggling to attain um Something resembling my abilities.
1: (laughs) Have you ever tackled (laughs) it? Have you ever tried tackling the piano part?
0: Oh, no. So, yeah, Matthew is manfully struggling, my partner, with the piano part. I mean, not struggling. He's doing really, really well. It's really, really difficult. It is. Yes, it is. I never realised. I had this wonderful violin teacher when I was young who um, actually happens to be the mother of Tim Hugh, the principal cellist of the LSO. Anyway, Mrs. Hugh, Mrs. Hugh <laughs> just picked up that piano. I mean, yeah. she was a wonderful pianist. I didn't know anything about piano playing, playing the piano. I did It never occurred to no. me that it was a kind of extraordinary feat to just sort of pick up the bombs open and just sort of, you know, just play it.
1: Because that's the problem um, with that's the problem with music teachers who can do that. Because they just they set up this very high expectation that surely everybody should be able to play Brahms as well as teach. Uh, and oh, I had a similar I had a similar music teacher at school who was able to uh, leap around the room and and then just sit at a piano and play anything that was put in front of him and also improvise. And I just used to think, well, surely every music teacher can do that. It's, it's not the case. <laughs> I didn't know how lucky
0: I was. So
1: has it been, have you selected the Brahms because it's uh, something that you've been working on or is it that it has supported you in some way during this period? I'm hoping the latter, but maybe it's just the former. Yeah,
0: no, definitely. I mean, you know, that first movement is just so utterly wonderful. Is it something to do with the pace of it? Um,
1: there's hope. I hear hope and expectation, yeah. and uh, a sort of there's a gentility about it that I find quite reassuring and uplifting. It is
0: definitely the most astonishingly uplifting um, piece, and and I think it's it's as as one learns from one's listening of building a library it, it you know it, it can occupy a number of moods depending on who's who's performing it and you know it's a very multi you know multifaceted piece in its own you know in its own little world um i mean there's a sort of general obsession with brahms and this household which is why the other piece of music is um brahms and Timmets, so late brahms intrometts one of the opus 119 um which I bully Matthew into
1: playing again. The bully Matthew, word has come up again, hasn't it? <laughs> quite
0: difficult.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed that the bully word has come up again. It's a, it's it's twice now.
0: Sorry, what's come up? I twice?
1: said I said uh, the bully word has come up again. Oh
0: yes, yeah, oh, gosh, isn't that awful? <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> this is revealing. Um, uh, t- before I before we talk about the second piece, which I didn't know. Uh, can- can I ask you about the article? I know I know you yes. you you write loads of articles anyway. Uh, it seems possibly slightly odd to pick out this one. But it does strike me that uh, this has had a massive impact on the classical music world. I don't know whether you're aware of that. Uh, and I, I know don't... that that's a really awful question to ask somebody who's written something, because I don't want you to feel as though I'm getting you to blow your own trumpet, forgive the pun, but I'm just wondering whether you get a sense of what impact it's had.
0: Well, no, I mean certainly there's a whole you know there's a kind of compa- if there's a sort of comparative exercise always to be done with these things because clearly you, 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 one has a sense of how something is um, whether it's just sort of hit hit the the pond like a stone and gone under and you know no you know hasn't made any impact at all or whether, I mean clearly from from social media you get a strong sense of whether people are discussing something and. Um, I was pretty surprised. I was pretty surprised, but this has had more um, obvious traction within within its sort of constituency, I suppose, within the constituency of the thing that it's talking about than um, anything written for a really long time. And it's not the most read thing. I mean, I I can't remember. I what was it? It's about fifty thousand. Reads, um which isn't massive um uh although I think it's quite big for our classical music articles um but yeah but the that I had a strong sense of it I had you know every time I checked twitter I was sort of was like, oh, it's another twenty plus mentions goodness, you know, so i did yeah i i was i was i was surpri- i was surprised, but there again. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised because you know there was a sort of I think as soon as I returned to work on the 27th of April, um, it was almost as it was that particular moment in the sort of arc of this awful thing that's happening to our society that I think just at that moment some people from the arts were beginning to say Hey this is this is getting really bad for us um, and it was just about. Ex- sort of somehow okay to say that because obviously people were rightly not about to say that when the most pressing concern was you know the lack of PPE for NHS workers and the fact that people have been dying in really large numbers and and of course that that remains the most sort of plangently terrible thing that is happening but anyway people were starting to talk a bit about you know starting to raise their hand and of course it was as we know it was mostly theater people and there was quite a lot of you know theater theater is in a bad place um but as, as we also know there hasn't been that much coverage of the classical music aspect and so i think just because there hasn't been so much i think everyone sort of rallied around this well not rallied around the piece but kind of you know recognized that, that this was being expressed now here and so and so, yeah, it was it was noticeable to me that a lot of people had read it and were talking about it or talking about things that arose from it,
1: yeah. In my experience, um, I've found that there are moments in time when one writes in isolation or in sort of mental isolation about something that perhaps is a reflection of our own passions and then it's put out there and then suddenly... We come to realize that actually it resonates with a whole uh, with a whole lot more people in the moment than perhaps we previously anticipated uh yeah, uh,
0: although in a way it wasn't a, i mean how can I express this? It wasn't an especially personal piece no in,
1: in no, and i place. I appreciate that yeah yeah
0: no, but i mean i mean I think it is interesting to think about that because because I think some i views have sort of been ascribed to me. Um not not in a terrible way, but I think people have assumed that i've got a slight, a different perspective from the perspective that I in fact do have, which was simply actually it was just reporting yes it yep. wasn't it wasn't a call to arms actually it wasn't a kind of we should do this it was it it wasn't addressed to the world of classical music although it's it's been mostly received by the world of classical music it was it was an attempt to lay down the situation, for those who didn't understand it, which actually, you know, most people who don't work in the arts. Yes.
1: um,
0: To express, to to somehow try to express the gravity of the situation and then also to express the way that people were thinking about it, both in terms of the kind of um, institutional responses, but also in terms of a a slightly more radical undertow of voices that were um, suggesting things that were a little bit different. Now it's really hard to fit all that it was really hard to express that in fifteen hundred words because it's a large, diverse and um you know multifaceted part of uh cultural life with many moving parts. Um but um the struggle was to was, was to was to sort of te- the struggle in a sense was not the reporting which was fairly straightforward. It was a sort of technical exercise of trying to um express
1: this clearly and sort of trenchantly um as a as a reader as a reader but yeah. I uh, this this may seem a little odd to hear but I'm keen to throw it at you but as a reader I read it first thing in the morning it was the first thing that I read and actually I found it very as an audience member and somebody who sort of participates in this world to a greater or lesser extent um I have found the prospect of there being no live performance until, you know, if you if you go go down the, the line of the South Banks uh, uh, announcement a couple of weeks ago, until April next year, as phenomenally difficult to deal with. And I'm just an audience member. Uh, I have no idea what that's like for arts managers or for musicians, although I have a, a sense of it. And so consequently, when I read it, when I read the headline, for example, I felt... Um, no exaggeration, as though finally we've got a cheerleader, and I realised that you weren't positioning yourself as a cheerleader, but it felt as though somebody is banging the drum, and and but somebody has brought has brought the voices together uh, because it felt as though people were not saying it and they weren't saying it loudly enough. Yeah, I mean,
0: I, and um, yes, it's interesting that you received it that way. As I say, I just. It wasn't so much that I wanted to bang the drum. I mean, I have to separate myself into two parts here. Obviously, in some ways, I do want to bang the drum, and I also, in another, I have another hat which is a leader writer. Yeah. Where I write leaders, and obviously those don't have bylines, but those express the views of the paper. It's not my own opinion, but you know, paradoxically, I write them. Yes. <laughs> um, and that's a much more you know that that but the kind of voice of the Guardian calling on the government to do things. And, and, you know, I have certainly uh, that's the much more banging the drum area of work for me. And I hope that I have fed into that room of leader writers, which is, you know, obviously looks at policy areas of, of every different kind, you know, tried very much in the past weeks to put what's going in the arts kind of very centrally at, um, the range of things that we are um, upset or angry about or concerned about. So that's sort of a slightly different thing. This was more like nobody's saying what's happening. You know, nobody's reporting this. Um, but, but that's a grotesque exaggeration. Of course, there have been after, there's been stuff on front row, and they have but there have been things here and there. But I, you know, you're, I suppose you're right to say that no one had drawn lots of different strands together. I suppose if there was a sense, if there was a slight personal frustration expressed, it was this thing about, I can't quite understand why, um, why, you know, famous conductors haven't written op-eds in newspapers or, you know, what, why is this so under the radar? And I have to, I mean, I should also give huge, um, um, you know know, it's not just me who was behind this piece far from it i was asked to do this piece you know this was a commission from imogen tilden the classical music editor at the guardian and from alex needham the culture editor at the guardian um who were kind of noticing this gap i mean actually the idea for the piece did not come from me but i was extremely happy to you know i I agreed with them absolutely that it it needed done and I was very glad that they that they wanted to do it, and very very glad that the arts editor in particular was willing um, to give a lot of space to it. Um, you know, classical music can slightly struggle for space at times uh, in all newspapers.
1: Why? Why and, is it? Uh, I don't know whether you have a view on this, but why is it that that classical music struggles to get the attention that, say, opera does, or that theatre does? i mean and even within that i appreciate that that coverage was going down for theatre and opera but but still it feels a little bit like classical music is the sort of um the younger sibling or the or the, the sibling that nobody really wants to pay very much attention to
0: well i'd slightly row back on that or um I mean, it can be a bit of a vicious circle, actually. There can be an assumption that people aren't going to read about it and therefore less is done. But actually, you know, um, quite a lot of people read this piece and we, uh, quite a lot of people read Simon Rattle and Mark Elder's um, follow-up piece, which was put on the front of the paper or, or was trailed on the, on the front of the paper with a last picture of Simon Rattle. Um, so I think sometimes, as I say, it can there can be a kind of, there can be a slight, slight I observe this because I work, uh, report on different parts of the cultural world, and I observe that there can be a bit of a, a kind of classical cringe, which is, oh, people aren't going to want to read about it, so we have to be sort of terribly careful and um, not put ourselves out there.
1: That's interesting. Um, okay, that's yeah, that's I I buy into that. I I can see that. That it's almost like they're projecting the image that that um that they assume everybody has of them and as a result of projecting the image that's the image that everybody has of them. <laughs>
0: Exactly, and they can struggle for space because they're not bold in what they say and they're not bold in what they say because they're frightened of upsetting the apple cart because the apple cart is is precious and fragile. You know, the apple cart is the sort of, uh, um, you know, infrastructure that um, is poorly funded compared to many other countries, is, you know, seen to be in a kind of state of decline and crisis quite a lot of the time. You know, the language around... um, you know, the landscape of orchestral music is often seen as, you know, preserving this preserving this thing that's sort of under threat and all of that you know, all of that can just sort of circularise itself.
1: Yes, yes I'd buy (laughs) it, yeah.
0: Theatre is much less scared of that and I think, you know theatre is theatre inherently is people sitting down in a room together and thinking up different ways of doing, you know creating a world and so it has that kind of and almost a sort of utopia, I think, you know, perhaps making a piece of theatre is a sort of utopian act in itself, because it involves imagining a, di- a different narrative. <laughs> and so they're always sitting down together and um, uh, evolving narratives. They're very happy to do that politically as well as sort of in, in the in terms of their creative work. And of course, it's a, it is a slightly different thing in classical music. I, it's sometimes frustrating because there's so much wonderful stuff. It's such a kind of broad and rich theme and um, yeah, so if there was a hint of frustration on my piece, there was a, there was a kind of but, but why are you know, why am I doing this? You know, there was, yes. there was, no, I get I you. Do, why is there a need for this piece? Yes, uh, when you should be doing this that, yourself. That, that, that was sort of the sort of very very
1: subtext did you did you get um a sense this guy this is me hoping i think that's that's the driver for this particular question did you get a sense from the people that you spoke to that there was a determination that there was uh, is there any optimism i i i get that there's a there's a we need help now but was it tinged with we're gonna do this we're gonna we're gonna ride through this we're gonna we're gonna do
0: it Yes, it was actually on the whole. And by the way, the you know this reluctance that I describe, you know that that nobody said. Well, hmm. <laughs> N- nearly nobody said um, we, we can't. We we're not going to speak to you. So everyone was very eager to express to me their particular situation, and I think some people felt that I could express it, which they, which meant that they you know that was a kind of safer way for them to expose themselves was via the medium of me, I suppose. Um, let it be said, I did I did ask to interview Simon Russell for the piece and um, was told that he didn't want to speak out at this time, which um, made it kind of interesting that, like... But you put say, a letter out the next then, day. He, he sent a letter mind. the next day. Um, but actually, yes, people were... People... <laughs> optimistic it was more like determined not to let this thing go under yeah um and you know we are going to fight every step of the way and that was you know nobody nobody wants nobody wants to you know nobody wants a disaster you know there was there was there's a sort of institutional people as it were were really kind of you know, the sort of sense of duty and fight and determination was kind of moving sometimes. And then there was the the sort of non institutional people were like, Well this is this whole you know, the, the 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 other rhetoric was, Well, this thing wasn't perfect anyway, so let's let's just let's just allow ourselves to think differently about it. This might have some this Dreadful situation might actually help us reframe the infrastructure in a way that is really positive and I was very interested in in, in that in, in those people who were thinking in those ways as well.
1: What What surprised you as a result of writing it or speaking to them? I was
0: surprised um, it was a result of writing it. What do you mean? Well, while I was researching it. Yeah,
1: also, yeah. I suppose uh, I'm, it's more it's more about the the research process, not necessarily the writing process. Um,
0: I was well. I think by the time I started researching it, I'd already I'd already written a comment piece about the you know the terrible situation in the art. So I'd already gone through um, my oh my god, it really is bad stage, which is when somebody sits down and explains to you that if if you break even at 80% capacity and you can't earn box office, through box office, then you're screwed. I sort of got my head around that. And that if you only have 20 or 30% Arts Council funding, you are not cushioned. So, you yeah, know, the basic, the basic economic facts I had processed Um in the course of in the course of thinking about it, I listened to something that I'm sure loads of your listeners will have listened to, and if not should, because it's just really interesting, was um, conversations with conductors on Alan Gilbert's Facebook page. Um, so Alan Gilbert in lockdown in Sweden or wherever he is, or is he indeed in Hamburg already? Anyway, somewhere, and. Uh, uh, talking via Zoom or whatever to you know, Simon Russell, Maren Allsop, um, Daniel Harding and various others. And they were just, Tony Papano, they were just, there they were, these conductors who couldn't at that moment do any work, although some of them are obviously in Europe are picking up the baton again, just kind of thinking about stuff. And thinking much more radically than you would have supposed, and in fact, Simon Rattle when he was talking in that conversation with Simon Gilbert, uh, uh, with Alan Gilbert, was much more radical, uh, I thought, and candid than he turned out to be when he wrote the follow-up article for The Guardian, which was much more about, we need to save our orchestra. In Alan Gilbert's conversation, he was, I thought, surprisingly kind of like, well, it can't go back to how it was. I mean, we can't do all this touring. You know, we're going to have to be more low. You know, it was much more kind of, like, oh, gosh, OK. Yeah. You really, you really see this as, uh, as an opportunity to reframe things. And that's kind of interesting.
1: When do you think that we will see the first green shoots within, you know, live performance?
0: Well, I think we've already seen them, thank God. You know, I mean, it's tiny with Hall lunchtime concerts with two people and no audience and no proper fees. Well, be I understand BBC fees rather than uh, you know kind of big recital fees. But it's something, isn't it? And um, there's more to come in Glasgow, and uh, there are these live. webcasts or live streams from um, the Royal Opera House on, of, from the small scale. And I think, you know, though on an institutional level, people with more funding, like the London Symphony Orchestra, will start doing bits and bobs. The, the thing that seems worrying to me is that of course you can't see classical music obviously you can't see, see it in isolation from the whole of the rest of the british situation in relation to um covid19 and and the government handling their role and um you know we are seeing that because of this wider way in which the whole thing has been handled and run that britain's recovery looks like it will be slower and more tentative than other countries who either have a uh, you know, kind of um, lower death rate per capita or, um, you know, hard, harder lockdown at the beginning and have been able to sort of uh, recover sooner. So so when you're seeing, you know, proper concerts in the Czech Republic with, with audiences in them and so on um, already, it feels pretty grim, but that feels like a long way off here. I think that's, that's, I suspect that's what's going to seem increasingly frustrating and sad, is that we are going to, us classical music fans, are going to notice increasingly that stuff is happening really quite near to us in countries that we had perhaps traditionally considered poorer or less competent than Britain. Yes, and, yes. you know, it's going, to be, it's going to be grim.
1: I need to ask you about the second piece, which I know nothing about. You've selected that?
0: I don't know, I just got into these um, Lake Brahms pieces um, a few years ago, why was it? Maybe it was because my friend Mark Prescott was playing, he's a very good pianist, amateur pianist, he was playing them. And, and I remember that my best school friend had played one when we were at school and... Um, and then I just started listening to a lot of YouTube recordings and I just love all of these, late like, Brahms piano pieces, these, you know, where are we, sort of Opus 117, 119, those, that kind of... I always get my Opus numbers a little bit muddled, so I'm sorry if I did <laughs> muddle those Opus numbers. But anyway, 119, definitely, the late piano pieces. I just absolutely love them. Absolutely yeah. love them.
1: What is it about Brahms for you, then?
0: Oh, I don't
1: know. What is it about Brahms? I'm sorry, am I I asking you the wrong?
0: I'm very bad at this sort of expression of what. I mean, maybe we all are. Um, (laughs) I think maybe it sort of comes from. I suppose I go back to our chamber music adventures. We um, play Brahms quintets and sextets. Being able to play Brahms' sextet, second violin, being able actually to play that with friends is such a, a remarkable thing to me. It, it never occurred to me in a million years that I would ever be able to do that. This is slightly, a slightly different thing from, I mean, I'm not as good as I was when I was 18. When I was 18, growing up in North Staffordshire, although I had a great, you know... To, um youth orchestra to be in and there was quite a lot of music and um my dearest school friend uh is the composer, Richard Baker and he was you know, there was, there was a lot there was, there was we, we were we were lucky. However, what there wasn't was this sort of critical mass of string players all living close together and doing lots of chain music. I didn't ever really have that. So being able to um Kind of climb inside this incredible repertoire, and particularly Brahms, just <laughs> been absolutely amazing. <laughs> and so, I do, I do really love Brahms. What can I say? I, I mean, it does it's... something kind of very big on the inside. You know, I find it very emotionally compelling and disturbing and what? sad-making and joyous and all of that. You know, all those embarrassing. What?
1: been listening to the thoroughly good classical music podcast if you enjoy it please consider supporting it for as little as two dollars a month visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to pledge your support